You have made it to the 11th session. We've gotten to one of the most difficult uh, and really uh, gloomy parts of this lecture. Uh, Ephesians 6.12 says that we are, uh, we're in a wrestling match, as uh, frightening as it is to imagine. I was actually on the wrestling team in high school, and uh, <laughs> don't think about that too long. But that is such an intense thing. I remember I was going to go out for some other sports, and the wrestling coach pulled me aside right out of the gate first week of high school and uh, recruited me for the team. And yeah, I'd never done it before, but to, to actually do I mean, real wrestling with these guys that were serious about you know, the goal, which is to pin you to the mat... Uh, you, you learn the, uh, the, the idea of a lot of biblical concepts, not that I was thinking in those terms back then, but we talk a lot about the domination of demons. And uh, for Paul to talk about wrestling, which hasn't changed any from the time it was going on there in Corinth as it is today with a few rule changes perhaps, it's the same intense, radically difficult, arduous experience of trying to dominate your opponent and not be dominated. And, uh, of course, we've, we've led up to this, understanding the nature, kind of the uh, ontological nature of angelic beings. We've tried to think outside the box of the normal uh, categories we tend to think in, and uh, then we've turned our attention to fallen, sinful angels, and hopefully we've got ourselves to a place to examine some of these texts tonight that will give us some insight, hopefully some... Uh, uh, more strategy even as we think about overcoming the uh, difficulties that we face being the target of, uh, of demonic frustration. Uh, again, they don't hate us as the end in their own hatred. They hate God, and uh, we as the kids of God become their natural target. So we want to begin by prayer, uh, by praying together as we always do, and uh, then we'll jump into the worksheet here. Hopefully you got one. And uh, looks like I wrote a lot of things for you on that front page, but uh, there's plenty to do, so don't relax. Let's pray. God, even that imagery in Ephesians 6 to remind us that the Christian life isn't going to be easy. It's not going to be a cakewalk. It's not going to be a, uh, some kind of path of tranquility, but it will be a, a battle. It'll be a war. Uh, certainly, as we think of each other, the motifs of family start to... Uh, flood our minds, but when we think about the Christian life and the challenge of progressive sanctification, the imagery and the motifs turn to warfare and battle and struggle and athletics and wrestling and fighting, uh, because this is a, a difficult thing you've called us to, to live a Christian life in a non-Christian world, to live by the principles and dictates of heaven in a world that is dominated by, uh, by Satan's uh, agenda, his oversight, his domination of the culture in which we live. So, uh, God, without being overly obsessed, as we set out at the very beginning of this series, not to become, not to be overly obsessed by trying to find a demon under every rock, but being wise and not ignorant of the schemes of the enemy, we want to come away from this 12-week series thinking more clearly about how you'd have us live uh, maybe more vigilantly, more carefully, more circumspectly as we face the things that we face every day in our Christian life. So thanks for this study. I pray it would be helpful, it would be enlightening, it would be uh, engaging, and one in which you would be honored as we put a spotlight on your truth again tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. 
We've done a little work in defining this just briefly, but we want to go a little bit deeper in defining what we're talking about when we turn our attention for this lecture to uh, what we have called demonization. Uh, We've talked about the Greek word, but let's write it down again just to transliterate it here for you. Daimonizomai. Daimonizomai. This is a word that shows up in uh, 13 different places in the New Testament, Uh, though there are other phrases we'll look at that describe this. Uh, It is something that is telling when we pull the word apart and and get a sense of what it means and try to avoid some of the misconceptions and myths that come from some archaic translations of this word. Daimon, or daomion, the the, the diminutive of that word that we looked at, uh, obviously is the subject of this word. It is the thing that is causing something, the is causal stem in Greek is giving us a sense that the demon is causing something. And because this participle is given a passive ending, the emos ending, or oh my, as it's transliterated in in our uh, lexical form here, uh, we can put those three things together and see what this word is trying to communicate. That when we use the word uh, daimonizomai, or we find it in the Greek New Testament, we're talking about a demon-caused passivity, uh, that this is some kind of work by an entity not resident as the uh, natural resident of of a person's mind, his thinking, his intellect, his volition, but there is something causing his passivity, which you can see just with the illustration quickly thrown out at the beginning, that's what wrestling is all about, right? It is about suppressing Uh, being uh, uh, subservient as the person being dominated uh, by another being. And when that is successful, the Bible calls it daimonizomai, demon-caused passivity. The common translation for that is demon possession. That's what most English translations through the years have used to translate daimonizomai. Uh, And that is a bit unfortunate. The problem is that the word possess in our English language gives us a sense of ownership. That's what it communicates. To say that someone is demon-possessed, we would think, if we translate it that way, in our minds, we don't see is the causal stem. We don't see any passivity of the subject. Uh, We see just that someone is owned by a demon. That's what comes to mind with that old translation. Uh, The problem is... Possessio, which is the, the, the Latin word which comes in to Old English, doesn't carry the idea of possession. It does loosely or it's related, it's a cognate of it, but the idea is to be held, and that's for a time, temporarily, to be occupied. The idea in Old English, as it is in Latin, is the idea of control. It is daimonizomai in Old English. To talk about being possessed by a demon means that you are at that time controlled by a demon. You become passive. The demon takes the front seat, the wheel. You take the back seat. And that is what the old words meant. Uh, but that's not what they mean today. And that is a problem starting with Tyndale's translation all the way through 1611 in the King James Bible and all the subsequent English translations. The language has changed so much uh, that we struggle with this uh, to to try and and, and update words, which needs to happen. I mean, the classic one we always talk about is pistuo and pistis around here. Uh, Pistuo, the verb, faith, uh, or or pistis, uh, uh, faith, 
or pistuo is, uh, I believe, uh, we tend to think that word is uh, to, to mentally agree with some facts. That's not what pistuo or, or pistis means. Uh, and because the word pistuo and pistis have always been translated, I believe, and faith through all these years, we unfortunately start to think that the idea of evangelism is getting people to believe a set of facts which, of course, it's not. It would be great if we would always change that translation in modern English uh, to avoid the concept of mental assent and get back to the idea of trust, which is what pastuo means. But you've heard me lecture on that soapbox many times, so I won't bore you with that. That's a problem. Let's just, before we get to the ESV, which is the translation we use around here, just a quick survey through other translations, you're going to find another word, a unique word, that shows up in the New American Standard Bible, the Revised Standard, the New Revised, Young's Literal Translation, which some people have been interested in based on some recent books that a lot of you have read, uh, the New American Bible. Those have all utilized this word, demoniac, uh, which is not a bad word. Uh, it uh, just didn't really catch on in all the translations. Anytime you see an IAC at the end of a word, for instance, when we talk about someone uh, who is an insomniac, uh, obviously we're building on the word insomnia and we're adding act to it. Uh, act simply means to be uh, characterized by. Uh, so if, if we talk about insomnia and we know what it is and you're the insomniac, then we know that you're the one who, who can't uh, sleep. Uh, kleptomania, right? We use the word act at the end of that and we mean that you are the, the klepto, which is the Greek word for stealing. Brainiac, I just threw that one in because people throw that one around as a pejorative term. But, uh, you know, you're, you, you are a big walking brain, I guess is what they mean by that. You're characterized by your brain. Obviously, that's what it means, to be characterized by or being like, which is not a bad translation, actually, but it's not one we find in the ESV, the translation that you use. But occasionally you'll talk about, maybe you'll go to Israel with us. Some of you are signed up. We've got 200 people signed up for Israel, just about. It's exciting. Had our first meeting last Sunday uh, to get you ready. And um, we're going to, you know, the, the, we'll get over there and they'll say, well, this is the scene of the, of the uh, this is the area of, of Gadara or the Gerasenes, as the ESV puts it. And here's where the demoniac was. Well, that's a word we use in English to describe someone characterized by a demon. And if you get back to demonizomai, you get the idea of that kind of works. Why is he characterized by the intelligence and the volition of another being? Because he's, he's, he's demonizomai, he's, he's demonized. But it's not in our translation, not that it's the only translation, but the one we preach from, the one we use, a lot of you read every year. Uh, so we need to think through what the ESV, how it translates it. Uh, the first translation, which I think is unfortunate because they kept this in, in uh, six times, six of the times that, six of the 13 times the word demonizomai shows up, they translated it demon possession or possessed by a demon. Possessed by a demon and demon possession, again, uh, should in our minds read controlled, dominated, not owned by. That's not the idea. Uh, ownership gives us a sense of you've got to buy this person back, there has to be some payment, or do they own this person permanently? That's just the wrong idea. Demonizomai does not give us a sense in Greek of ownership. It gives us a sense of controlled or dominated, okay? Demon-possessed. So I don't know. It'd be good to talk to the translators one day. We know several of them that worked on the committee, but uh, why they weren't more consistent and, and just use the second word, which is not a bad word. It really communicates demonizomai better, and that's demon oppressed or oppressed by a demon. 
out of the 13 times, the ESV uses that seven times, and that's probably a better way to describe this, depending on what you think of when you read the English word oppressed. Uh, It means to be kept in subservience, right? To be dominated, to be overcome by some other authority, uh, to be oppressed. Uh, We talk about political regimes that oppress their people or a foreign army that oppresses the the, the, the patriots or whatever. I mean, to be more specific, it is to be caused or pressed to do something, to be oppressed. And when you combine it with oppressed by a demon, we get the idea that you are being pressed or caused. Uh, There is authority against you that is somehow overcoming your own authority, and that's the idea of daimonizomai. So it is the majority, and I gave you all the references there if you want to look them up again. Uh, Again, I don't know that we did that, but we did reference some of these passages. So there are the 13 times that the word shows up, seven times uh, demon oppressed or oppressed by a demon, six times demon possessed, which I'm just trying to say, be good for us to nix that idea in our minds of ownership. I've said that enough for that to be something you'll remember seven years from now. All right, 20 minutes ago. Okay. Uh, let's talk about other phrases that are employed because this is helpful. We'll get into all the Greek words here, although we can if you want, but they're, they're, they're helpful. Let's turn to these real quick. Mark chapter 1, verse 23. Mark chapter 1, verse 23. I don't have them all here, but I got the ones that I think are the most significant and telling and helpful in giving us a sense of, of what we mean by demonizomai, demonizomai or demonized. Other phrases employed to talk about the same experience or the same thing. Oftentimes the synoptic gospels laid side by side help us because one synoptic will use the word demonizomai and the other one will use a different phrase. And that's helpful because it gives us a sense in terms of the grammar of describing the scene and describing the incident, what we're talking about. Mark 1, 23. Let's, for context, just get verse 21 going here. They went into Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Christ is the he here, verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately, verse 23, there was in their synagogue a man, here's the word to circle, I mean, it's really the key operative word in in the phrase, with. It's the Greek preposition en, epsilon nu, en, with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, be silent, come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the region of Galilee. So the first phrase we get here is with an unclean spirit with an unclean spirit. And if you were to go look up in a lexicon how this preposition is used, uh, it's usually translated in, like I-N in English. Epsilon nu, E-N in in Greek is translated I-N, in, or in the state of, or in the sphere of, or in the arena of. Uh, It has, it's a spatial, all prepositions are spatial, but it has the sense of uh, this guy uh, was... Uh, there was a man in the synagogue with, a man with in the arena of, in the, in the domain of uh, an unclean spirit. Luke 6. Let's, we'll tie all these together as we move through it. Luke 6.18. Luke 6.18. The natives are restless here at Compass. Wait till they get outside that door, right? That's when they, they fire up in about 40 minutes. Those kids. 
Luke 6, another description. Let's start in verse 17 for some context. They came down and stood on a level place. He did, Christ did, with them, the disciples, stood on a level place. And with a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon up there, up north, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who, here's the phrase, were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. This is the same kind of of phrase we have where the word demonizomai is used, possessed by demons, uh, as it's translated in older translations, or oppressed by demons. But here we have a different word, to be troubled with unclean spirits. Um, This Greek word is usually described or defined or sometimes translated to be disturbed, to be be annoyed, to be aggravated by. So here's something, someone who cannot go or these people cannot go on with a normal life because their life is interrupted by, that's the idea, interrupted by unclean spirits. Their lives are troubled by them, are disturbed by them, are aggravated by them. They don't have normal life because their lives are under attack, if you will. Christ cured them. The crowd sought to touch him. Power came out of him. He was healing all of these folks. Let's go to Acts, Acts 5. Acts chapter 5, which is another form of the same word that's used there in Luke 6, but it does in any dictionary or lexicon carry a stronger sense of uh, definitions. This one you remember, the scene where the apostles are endowed with the authority that Christ had Uh, Not all of the authority, but a good deal of his authority. That's why they're called apostles, not just disciples. Disciples are followers. Apostles are authorized emissaries. And they had the ability, as the rest of the New Testament says, 2 Corinthians 14, 14, uh, or 12, 12, rather, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, all over the New Testament, it says these are special people. They have special abilities, verse 12. And many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. This is just some context, verse 12. And they all were there in Solomon's portico on the Temple Mount down in Jerusalem. None of the rest dared to join them because, I mean, it's not, you're not going to cozy up to the apostles doing all this crazy, powerful stuff. Uh, imagine hanging out with Christ. I mean, that's the whole point of Rev 1. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Anyway, they didn't even want to have dinner with the apostles. They were too amazing. And the people held them in high esteem, verse 14. And more than ever, the believers were added to their number, a multitude both of men and women. And so they even carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats uh, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick. Now here's the phrase. And those afflicted, translated here, with unclean spirits. Different word, same concept, a bit stronger. Definitions like molested, vexed attacked, frustrated. They have a life that is no longer what it was. It is now under a great deal of of pain, a great deal of frustration uh, because they are vexed by demons. One more. We're in Acts. Go to chapter 10. Acts 10. This is Peter who is called from Joppa, where we'll be night number one, has to go down to Caesarea because Christ calls him there to the coast where Cornelius is, the Italian leader of his cohort. And as he comes and starts preaching to Cornelius and his team, Peter says this in verse 37 for context here, 
Acts 10.37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing, here's our phrase, all who were, radically different word here, a great word, a strong word, a descriptive word, oppressed by the devil. Now, demonizomai in English may turn up in our ESVs as oppressed by the devil some, what, seven times? or demon oppression. This is a whole radically different word. It is the word power with the compound in the front of it, kata, which is the Greek preposition uh, to be against or down on. Here is the word that comes to mind also when we think of oppression. It is that, that these demons are taking their power and, and putting it down on these people. That's the picture of oppression. It has a, a directional sense to it. Uh, this power or control or this force is pressing down on them. And, of course, the context here is that Jesus is going and relieving those people from that, healing them who were oppressed by the devil. So these are other phrases that describe demonization. With, in the realm of, in the, the arena of, the Spirit is having his day with that person troubled, uh, opposing, going after, disrupting, afflicted, vexed, molested, um, attacked, oppressed, power controlling against. It's a battle scene. It's the domination idea. Now, you can't miss this in the Bible when it comes to demonization. There are spatial descriptions. You don't need to turn to this one. You know it. This is... Uh, we're going to look at the, the parallel passage to this a little later. But in Acts chapter 8, uh, when this demon uh, speaks for the team and he calls himself legion because we are many. Do you remember that? Here in verse 30, it says, Jesus asked, what is your name? He said, legion, for many demons had, here's the phrase, entered him. Okay, now that's a spatial description. All these other words so far have given us a sense of some kind of power down upon uh, dominating, uh, suppressing, making subservient the intellect or the volition of the person. Now we have a picture of, of, of a person being like a container, and inside of that person, here are these, these spirits. Now the classic definition has to do with their intellect, their volition, their power, their authority, uh, so dominating the authority of the person that, that they are pushed back to the back seat and this demon for whatever period of time takes the controls if you will part of how this is understood even in you know our understanding of god's relationship with us is we talk about a spatial connection when jesus said the spirit of god is with you but then right he'll be in you that's the whole change of the day of pentecost the new covenant relationship wasn't the spirit being with me it was in me i mean it, it's not really about location. I know it's described that way, but that location is giving me a sense of intimacy and connection. You are outside of me, right? That's, you know, that's how we are, and that's how we like it. You stay there, I stay here. Uh, I'll live my life, you live yours, and we interact, but uh, you're not inside of me, right? That's the idea of such domination that it is described with such an overtaking, such a dominance that the spirits are seen to be or described to be inside. I wait to get to this after describing all the rest so that we just don't think in terms of you're a container and do you have what do you have inside of you, right? 
Although the spirit is described that way, I get that. This has to do with relationship. This has to do with intimacy. This has to do with, with control, influence, domination. That's the idea. And we could go on with several examples of this, but here's another to show the opposite direction. This is in Acts 16 when we had the clairvoyant, the fortune-telling, demon-possessed slave girl in Philippi. Do you remember that? We looked at that passage in the series already. And here, when it's solved, Paul says uh, to the spirit in this girl, uh, come out of her. And the last phrase in verse 18, and, and the spirit came out. The picture here is spatial. In you, out of you. In you, dominate. Out of you, not dominating. Which is very common in all the discussions about demonic um, as we call it, oppression, or as the ESV says half the time, possession, which means control, spatial description. Well, after all of that, you piece that all together, it's time for a definition. I'll give you Mike, Mike's definition here. Because it's in varying degrees, here's the first three words of the definition. It has to have some evident degree. We're not talking about just, just the extreme examples because we've already seen... Damon Izabai be used as it relates to a guy living among the tombs and cutting himself with rocks all the way over and living there naked all the way over to a gal who's got a bent back. Remember that? Those, that's a bit of this span that we see in intensity. So it's some degree can be somewhere on the spectrum that still qualifies for the idea of oppression, domination, some kind of, here's what we'll use now as the second part of the definition, of control over a person in a person, if you will. You want to use the spatial picture. In a person, over a person, there is some kind of control, some degree of control. And let's just talk two areas, because we looked at this last time. Uh, It can be an area that is uh, manifested physically. Look at all the things we looked at last time when we talked about physical problems, mental problems. We listed those. Or volitionally, which is definitely expression of this. We'll look at an example here, a case study in Mark. So it's some degree, some evident degree of control over a person, physically or volitionally. Of course, daemon is my daemon by, by a demon, by an entity that is a fallen angel that was there at creation and rebelled against God. So there's a, a careful definition of what we're talking about. Some evident degree of control over a person, physically or volitionally, by a demon. You can see with that definition, if you can buy all that after all that we've looked at here, uh, this is not just some simple thing. Are you or aren't you? Right? I, it, it can be a muddy discussion. That's why my bookshelf is full of books that all debate issues about who's demon-possessed and who's not. Right? Uh, who can be and who can't. This becomes a very difficult thing to clinically describe when the Bible gives us such a broad composite of what we're talking about. But I think, at least in my mind, we can at least say it it has to be some evident degree of control. It can be manifested physically or just volitionally, and it's not the person, it's the demon. Let's go to a case study in Mark 5. Case study in Mark 5. Let's read this text. We'll get one, two, three, four, five, six observations about this. And because I think if you look at the words and you look at the descriptions and you look at how this is described in the Bible, clearly we can't even build an exhaustive list of what this looks like. But we can take a case study, and it's admittedly a very extreme case, but we can see some things that go beyond where we were last time. Last time we looked at 
physical and mental problems related to the work of demons, but we're looking now specifically at those who are called demonized, and we want to look at some of the other characteristics of that, manifestations of that. What kind of control do they exercise? Verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. To the country of the Gerasenes, several scribal glosses and clarifications in margins of ancient texts that in uh, your Bible, I'm sure, footnotes that will go to this place on our trip to Israel. Let me know if I say that too much. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. There's the phrase we've talked about. Okay? Now, here's the first thing we see. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. I could bind all of you with a chain tonight, and you'd be bound. Put handcuffs on you, you'd be stuck, right? That's the reality of normal, natural strength versus steel chains, or in their case, iron chains. One characteristic in this text is, here is something unusual, unnatural, and in this case, it's unnatural or unusual strength. Here is the ability, because of the domination of a demon, for a demon to utilize a human body, overtake it, dominate it, use the person as a passive instrument, and provide more strength through that body than the person could provide without the demon dominating him. That's the idea. That's one of the things that makes this whole realm so scary in the Bible. You do remember in Acts chapter 19, the seven sons of Sceva, remember that? And, and here was this one demon-possessed man, this demonized person who is able to kick the butts of seven grown men, right? Seven on one. And they go out terrified and beaten and stripped because one guy does them all. Now, I'm pretty confident with seven healthy guys, we could take any one person. I, seven on one. But here's another example of unusual strength that is attributed to someone who is demonizomide in the Bible. Uh, verse 4, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he, was, uh, but he wrenched the chains apart, he broke the shackles, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Now, I'm assuming an emotion here. I can prove another text of, Dam- of uh, Damonizomite people, but let's jot this down. Extreme fits uh, of anger. And I'm not so much interested in the clinical descriptions today, although I could talk about those with some limited experience, but you've got to realize that if you read Galatians, for instance, and it talks about the, 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 the outgrowth of the flesh, the natural propensity of the flesh, uh, one of the things that we all are prone to without the uh, influence and the submission to the Holy Spirit is, is outburst of anger. That's one of the things on the list. You let yourself do whatever you want to do, you're going to blow up with anger every now and then. Uh, but there's something about the consistency that we find in the ex- cases of Daemonizomai where people are um, engaged in extreme fits of anger with a lot of damage in this case, which is connected to letter A, unnatural physical strength. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out, screaming, and cutting himself with stones. Now, we looked at this uh, last time. But uh, self-destructive acts, we talked about cutting, for instance, is this major, you know, trend today uh, among, you know, self-destructive teens and adults and had another case of it that I ran into in my ministry this week, uh, another cutting case. I'm not saying every instance of cutting or every instance of extreme 
strength even. I mean, guys on drugs, on PCP or whatever can, can do those kinds of things too. But I'm not saying every instance of any of these is, is, is an absolute, absolutely confident uh, case of daemonizomai. But I am saying in this case, we find self-destruction as, as a frequent thing. Put in your notes at least Matthew 17, uh, 15. We looked at this passage last time. It's about the boy who always convulsed. They was called an epileptic in that passage, but it said night and... Uh, I'm sorry, it says he often falls into the fire and into the water. He, this was suicidal. So beyond just the self-destructive acts, but the suicidal acts as well is one of the evidences of someone who's overrun by a demon. The person doesn't want to kill himself, does not want to injure himself, but the demon overtakes that and it happens. Verse 6, And when he saw Jesus from afar, this guy, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now think this one through. You've got someone who can torment you. You and I, you know, if we can't fight, we engage in flight, right? We leave. Uh, here is someone running toward Jesus. When this man sees Jesus, he runs toward Jesus and he falls down and says, don't torture me. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, let's call it this, um, split personality. I mean, clearly, if, if a demon, if, we, if any of this theology is right, has his own intellect, emotion, and will, and so does the host, if you will. The person has intellect, emotion, and will, and those two conflict. In one case, uh, in, in letter B, someone wants to live and a demon wants to destroy the person. Uh, the, the, the person that wants to be healthy and the demon wants to, to destru- destroy by cutting in that case. Uh, in this case, the individual wants help and the demon wants nothing to do with, with, with Christ and wants to go the other direction, doesn't want to be tormented. Verse 9 as well, uh, Jesus asked, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion for we are many. Parallel passage we read earlier, or I quoted at least. Uh, when someone asks the guy his name later, he's got a name, and it's one because he's one. <laughs> uh, he's answering through his mouth. His teeth are being used for the dental syllables in his mouth. His tongue is flapping to communicate, and all of that is communicating something that would not be communicated later when the demon wasn't dominating. So what's the point? It's like you got two personalities there. That's the idea. Uh, let's be more specific about this because I certainly see this as the reality when it comes to, to issues of, of uh, demonization. He comes and, and, and runs to this guy. He cries out in verse 7, uh, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you, don't torment me. He doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. Um, that, let's call it this, letter E, an aversion to Christ, uh, or in our case, uh, you know, or even in the second century, several examples of this in the patristic fathers, uh, they want nothing to do with, with Christianity. That is, that's clear, aversion to Christianity. Careful what I say at this point. Interesting. I think of uh, Alice Cooper, not very often, but uh, I don't know. It'd be embarrassing for you to admit you know anything about Alice Cooper's career, but Early in the 80s, he took a hiatus after really wrecking his life with drugs. And you know Alice Cooper, right? I mean, this guy's whacked. Um, and his whole thing was about darkness and demonic stuff and Satan and the devil. Well, in the early 80s, he takes a hiatus. 
Uh, I'm in Bible school taking classes on demonology, and uh, he, he's coming in. Uh, my, my buddy works the front desk at uh, Moody Bible Institute at the Kroll Hall there. He works the desk, and, of course, it's high security because we're in downtown Chicago. And, and as I walk through to see him and visit him and moving on my way from class to class, uh, I see Alice Cooper waiting for his counseling appointment uh, with one of the professors at, at, at Moody. Um, it was an interesting thing. It was right before he got picked up. I know too much about Alice Cooper. Uh, <laughs> by the next recording artist, MCA, or what's that? Is that right? Picked him up after his old label dropped him. He was out for about a year, and when he was in that year, he was on our campus. Uh, low. Pr- I mean, he didn't look like he'd just come off a concert stage. Uh, you know, he was dressed in a sweater. But, uh, you know, you could tell us Alice Cooper. I remember saying to my friend, where he asked, is that Alice Cooper? I said, yeah, he comes in for counseling all the time. Uh, I thought, what a weird thing, especially when he got picked up on his next label and went back out there doing the same stuff he was doing, right? After he cleaned himself up from drugs. It, to me, was always that picture of coming for help at this bastion of the Bible in downtown Chicago while the guy is on the stage, you know, biting chicken heads off and, and you know, yelling hell Satan or whatever. I've never been to an Alice Cooper concert, but I've, I've seen video, just snippets. I haven't watched the whole thing. <laughs> which, by the way, if you do track his, his, his career, which is sad, uh, He's claiming now to be a, you know, a professing Christian, um, you know, claims to be a follower of Christ. Interesting guy, though. And back in the day, I mean, this is back in the day when he wasn't. I know he was raised in a church and all that. His dad was a lay preacher, and I've heard all those stories. I did a little research when I started seeing him at school, but uh, I was not a classmate. Um, but I thought to myself, what a picture of that kind of aversion to Christ, but this longing for Christ, Right? This hatred for the truth, and yet this interest in, help me, give me the truth. It always was that kind of bigger-than-life example of running to Christ and then saying, what do I have to do with you? Because that was the example of my, say, what does this guy have to do with Christ, right? And he's coming to to, to get help. Um, Yeah, I don't know why I shared that. Maybe that helped in some way. Verse 7, we've seen this in Acts 16. But he's crying out with a loud voice saying, what do I have to do with you, Jesus? Now, this is interesting. Son of the Most High. Now, here is Jesus after many, many months with his disciples asking his disciples, who am I? Who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And there's all these answers, right? And finally, Peter gets the right answer and, and, oh, you know, hey, flesh and blood hadn't revealed this to you, right? Heaven's revealed this to you. Here's a guy you just met naked in a graveyard, breaking chains. He's got his theological answers spot on. <laughs> Son of the Most High, right out of Daniel, right? We just read it in our annual Bible reading. This is the, he knows who he is. Let's put it this way. Supernatural capabilities. You will see people demonstrate abilities to do things like Acts 16, the clairvoyant, the fortune teller slave girl, that girl shouldn't know anything about the future. And yet she has the ability to transmit things to people for money. And then the demonic spirits are obviously probably teeing it up high for themselves to, do, to foretell things that they can carry out. And so they go off and they do it, uh, utilizing whatever they utilize to get that, that prediction to come true. Here is someone who should not know who Jesus is. He he may have heard something about him, but Jesus, Son of the Most High? How is that? 
We saw that in the passage we read earlier. Also, where the demon knew exactly who Christ was, knows all about what's happening. Uh, That person is saying the words, but it's not that person's knowledge. Uh, That's why there are genuine fortune tellers. There are genuine clairvoyants. And as we said last time, a lot of them are frauds and a lot of them are, you know, know know-nothing charlatans, but some of them are genuine. And when you got the real one, you, you got a bad one. You shouldn't mess with it, obviously. Just to finish the story, verse 10, he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. That's an odd request from the demon. We already read verse 9, name the legion. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Now, that was not the you know, number one order on the Jewish diner's menu. So that's an interesting thing we could talk about another time. But, and begging him, the demons begged legion, begged Christ, send us into the pigs and let us enter them. Now, that's an odd thing which I can't fully explain to you. There are theories about what's with that. Um, But, you know, the option would seem to be leave us alone. You're going to cast us out of this guy. Let us just go about our duties doing something else. But why they're seeking a refuge here uh, may get into areas that are purely speculative. But nevertheless, he goes fine. And the unclean spirits came out, entered the the pigs, and the herd, numbered about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea. Now, this is the Sea of Galilee. The one reason we know we can probably take you to the Gerasenes when we get to to Galilee in Israel is because it's really the only place around the Sea of Galilee that there's a steep bank where you could send animals into the, the, the Sea of Galilee. The herdsmen fled, told the city about it. People came to see what had happened. They came to see... Uh, Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, verse 15, the demonizomite guy, demon-oppressed man, who had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, that's when they should drop the title demon-possessed man, because obviously he's not. He had the legion, but now he's a totally different guy in his right mind, in the mind that he had before, in the mind that was not dominated or oppressed by or overcome by another entity, in that case, several. Those who had seen it described it to them and what had happened to the demonizomite guy, the demonized guy, and to the pigs. They began to beg Jesus to depart from the region, just like the apostles. We don't want to have lunch with you. This is too weird, too scary, too powerful. So getting into the boat, uh, the man who had been possessed uh, with the demons begged him that he might uh, be with him. He did not permit him, but he said, go home to your friends and Tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he'd had mercy on you. Which, by the way, side note, has nothing to do with this at all. But when I have another person tell me, well, you know what? If you're really a Christian, you really believe the Bible, it says there in Matthew 19, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and follow Christ. I guess, you know, you don't really follow the Bible. Uh, You do understand that in the ministry, earthly ministry of Christ, his reaction to people's test of faith when he was going to say, you trust in me, I'm the Messiah. That's the whole point of Christ's ministry. His reaction or his requirement was different every time. What is the outgrowth of that? For this guy it was, I really want to come with you. He said no. To the rich young ruler it was, I don't want to come with you. I want to go back and make more money. And he said no, sell everything you have, follow me. So just for the person that lays you on that, because in evangelism you always get that guy that says that, right? What if you sell all you have and give to the poor? Uh, you know, if God asked us to, we certainly would. And if God uh, asks us to, you know, whatever he asks us to do, we do. And in this case, in his earthly ministry, he asked this guy to not follow Christ physically, but to go back home and be an evangelist. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis. That's the ten cities uh, run by the Romans in the northern part of uh, Palestine, if you will, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. 
And again, I call it a case study because we cannot give you a list of what demonization looks like. I can give you an extreme example here and give you some more categories and build on the ones we gave you last time. But let me spend the rest of our time dealing with this because these are the questions people have and we should talk about it. A word about vulnerability and culpability. Vulnerability and culpability. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. In other words, who is vulnerable to being oppressed by a demon? Uh, And I want to talk about culpability because if it really is demon-caused passivity, you can't blame a guy for doing something if he's passive and a demon is active. So how can anybody be blamed for being demonized? This guess it's not a sin, right? Talk about that. But let's start with Ephesians chapter 2 and just look at this text and think of it in terms of all that we've talked about in our series so far. Verse 1, talking about the pre-Christian days of the Christians in Ephesus. Verse 1, Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in the trans- trespasses and you were dead in trespasses. I'm learning to read this week. Let me try that again. And really, one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible. I'm new at this. I became a pastor on Tuesday. Uh, let me try it again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Right? Dead at least to God, right? We were dead to God, no relationship with God. God and us did not have a relationship. Following the course of this world, apparently there's a path, that's culture, right? Following the prince of the power of the air, we've defined him earlier in our series, right? We know we're talking about Satan here, and you're talking about as non-Christians, following Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, right? Disobedient sons of Jewish idiom, you're acting disobedient, you're a son of disobedience, just like Barnabas was a son of encouragement. You always go around encouraging people, you're a son of encouragement. Disobedient non-Christians are said in this text to be following the course of the world, following more specifically Satan, and Satan, that spirit, is at work in them, among whom, well, that's just the really bad people, the people we watch on, you know, the Dateline stories, right? No. Verse, Verse 3, among whom we all once lived, In the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, God's enemies, like the rest of mankind. Okay? Let's start with this observation. Non-Christians, I mean, just to start with non-Christians in this text, are clearly vulnerable to what we've been talking about tonight and last week. They are, according to this text, everyone who is not a Christian is following a cultural path that is a natural path for them that apparently in this text is like following in step with a head rebellious demon and that spirit is at work in them. Even there is a spatial term. Do you get that? I mean, here we have a a picture of every non-Christian having, in a sense, this robotic following of Satan and that spirit working in them. So in that regard, every non-Christian has some kind of demonic influence, right? I mean, I can't avoid it there. And you want to put it a little bit stronger. How about, um, let's, go to, let's go to 1 John 5. 1 John 5, the end of the book. The very end of the book. 1 John 5, 19. 
we know that we are from God. He's made a lot of contrast here in the last chapter of 1 John. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Look at that. We know we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the contrast here is, right, we're from God, we're of God. But they, those guys, there's a power that dominates them. Okay? Go back, as long as we're in First John, one of the best books in the Bible. They're all good. But I, I like this one a lot. Go to chapter 3. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who the children who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Well, where's the middle group? I want a middle group because I don't want to think in those black and white terms. I remember some guy really angry at me about Christianity. You're, Christians are always bifurcating people into two groups, right? I'm not bifurcating people into two groups. The Bible does, right? You got two camps. There's no middle ground here, right? If you are born again, which this whole passage is about, I mean, go up in verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Whoever pra- makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. He's all about sin. And that's the reason the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Two camps, and they're so clearly described here now, not as in you, or chapter 5, under your influence, under the power of the evil one, but in this case, children of. They're children of the devil. Now, Satan doesn't have to have these overt expressions of demon-caused passivity to get his job done because according to Ephesians 2, 1 John 5, 1 John 3, he's getting his job done without any carnival shows, right? People are continuing to disobey. And to add one more, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's continually blinding their eyes from the glory of Christ and the truth of the gospel. He's getting his job done without head spinning and chicken heads coming off in your mouth. He's getting his job done. But, oh, by the way, that may help us with statements like this. I jotted this down. Mark 9, you don't need to turn to this one. You remember this from last week, 9, 20 through 22. Mark chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. They brought a boy to him uh, when Jesus saw the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit, I'm sorry, when the Spirit saw Jesus, immediately the boy convulsed. He fell on the ground. He rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked, how long has this been happening to him? Well, ever since he went to the uh, Alice Cooper concert, it all started at 13. Is that what he said? Do you remember what he said? From childhood. At the time he was a little kid. So in that regard, we're going to talk about culpability, but let's talk about vulnerability. We, we see the world in two categories because the Bible does, and the Bible says this, every non-Christian, including us, when we were non-Christians, were under the power of the enemy. We followed him. His spirit was at work in us, so to speak. The spirit was at work in us because we were disobedient. We were not saved. We were not redeemed. We were separated from God. We were dead and we were children of the devil. So that extreme example of that boy, we start to recognize, well, that would make sense. I mean, even though I don't see there was some mechanism, I don't even know if I have to find a mechanism because that's how we're all born, under that authority. Now, that rattles all the folks, you know, all the, the, 
the kind of Pelagian thinking in our church. I know your precious little kid is the most beautiful child ever born in Orange County, and you think they come out pure as the driven snow. But you don't understand what the Bible has to say if you for one moment believe that they are not completely, according to the Bible, depraved, lost. They need to be redeemed. You should be grateful that God doesn't bring babies into the world full size, hairy and six feet tall. We'd all be dead as parents, would we not? Think about what your children would do to you at six months old if they just had the strength. Great line for a parenting conference. Um, Let me give you the point, and then we'll look at a passage, but let me start with logic here, and then we'll go to the text to to show you some, some, some support and affirmation of this. Common grace restrains demonization. I didn't have room for that, so I just put demonism. This stuff we've been talking about is not as rampant as it could be because of, just to use a general biblical theological phrase, common grace. Um, Because we can see enough in Scripture, back to way back to Job, when we looked at Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. We know that in that text, and I know it's about a Christian there, but Satan wanted to do a whole lot more than he was allowed to do. He would have loved to have destroyed them all. Or how about Jesus saying to Peter, Satan right, has demanded to sift you like wheat. Remember that? And that's a plural second person pronoun. Sift you all like wheat. But he says, I prayed for you. Satan would like to do a lot more to people than he's doing. He'd probably like to throw every kid into convulsions on the ground, foaming at the mouth and throwing himself in the fire and the water. I'm saying he can get his agenda done without it. But I think logically I can see in the Bible that there's enough there to think he would do a lot more than he presently does. So I got to think there's restraint by God's grace. Go with me in your New Testament to 1 Thessalonians. I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The principle of restraint in a lot of things. I mean, this kind of intersects because we're talking about the man of lawlessness who is, according to the book of Revelation, you know, this man who is almost the embodiment of, of Satan's work on the earth. It is not happening because there is restraint. God's restraint through His church and through the Spirit of God. When we look at the book of Revelation, it's going to get a lot worse. And there's going to be a lot of terrible things that happen. Second Thess chapter 2, look at verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. They're thinking, we missed it all. We missed it. No, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now that's going to happen. You know you haven't missed it because that hasn't happened, right? The whole eschaton isn't going to take place unless that takes place. So you haven't missed anything if you haven't seen that. And that's good. I don't want to see that. Verse 4. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Wow, that sounds almost dispensational. Uh, Proclaiming himself to be God. If you don't know what that means, more on that another time. You do not remember that when I was still with you, Paul says, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him. There's our word. You know what's restraining him now so that he may not be revealed in, in his time. So that he may be revealed in his time, but not this time, not now. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's already at work. 
as John said, many antichrists have gone out, but the antichrist himself has not come. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Then, verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. So I know at least in this one facet, he's not having his full way yet because there's restraint and all the power and false signs and wonders and all the wicked deception and those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth, just to talk a little bit of, about culpability here, and so be saved. Therefore, God sends a strong delusion. Why are they sending a delusion? Because they refuse to love the truth so that they may believe in what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Which is a good segue for us, by the way, into culpability. But do you see what I'm saying here? Why is there not more overt signs of demonization like we see in the Gospels? Uh, all I can say is because God in His providence and in His grace is restraining whatever degree you don't see of it. Uh, the you know, fact that you, you see it and when you see it and as you see it, well, then obviously He's not restraining it in particular situations. As in Job's case, to be specific in Job, Job's you know, dying. Uh, his family's dying, rather. He wants to die. Uh, he's got boils all over his body. Satan was at work heavily there. Now, I say I want to segue because here is the case of Satan having full leash. Why? Because in the case of lawlessness and the people that will, uh, in the case of the man of lawlessness and the people that will be negatively affected by his ministry, it is all about the fact that they didn't love the truth. Uh, I just want to make the point this way. Successful temptation if he's all about sin and sin is what he's about and he wants to get people to sin and ultimately there's a connection between sin, giving into temptation and domination by demons, you just need to know that every successful temptation involves a person's volition, not just a demon's overtaking them. There's an important point to make. And you might want to jot down James chapter 1. And you know this text, I trust, verses 13 through 15. And he says this, don't blame your temptations on God. Don't say it's God doing it. Every person, verse 14 says, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. We are all participants in our own temptation. How does that answer the problem of the boy who had the demon from the time he was a kid? I don't know that I can answer that other than to say that is the domain of Satan. Every person from the time they're born, uh, well, if you don't see the full-fledged expression of that demonization, well, then you know there's common grace restraining that. But when it comes to someone who is dominated by demons, at least we can assume in most cases we have people that have given in to what that expression is all about because it is all preceded by willing, volitional participation in sin. And I should say, even the ongoing demonization of a person. This is the weirdest passage in, the, in, in our discussion so far. Go to Matthew 12 with the remaining time here, a couple passages that may help. Matthew 12. I wish we had Christ here just to have a little time, a fireside chat uh, which we'd be afraid to have, but let's just say we could have one. Just ask him about this one passage here. What are you talking about? We'll, we'll try and figure out as best we can what he's talking about. But apparently the ongoing domination of demonic beings on a person, we can assume, safely assume, not only is it the domain of a lost person, but 
most connection with sin, which is what he is all about. We learn that in 1 John 3. I mean, that's he's sinned from the beginning. If you're a chronic sinner, that's the whole point. Uh, in this text, once there's some activity there, if there's not some fix that apparently involves your volition, then you're going to have the problem compounded. Verse 43 is what I'm looking at. Matthew 12, 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, there's the spatial discussion again. We can assume it's dominated the person, at least expressions of domination, overtaken them. There's been some passivity on the part of the person, and the demon has had his way with that person in some way. Well, now that it's gone, something's happened and he's left. This is weird now. It passes through waterless places seeking rest. That's just usually describing the idiom of the Jewish people regarding uh, God-forsaken places. That's the way we kind of say it in our English idiom. Waterless places, they're not blessed by God to have the rains and the spring rains and the harvest. Um, But anyway, whatever the the idea there is, they're they're looking for, for another host, but they find none. Then it says, the demon... I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house. This is the volitional slam. The house is empty, swept, and put in order. But it's empty. There's the idea. And again, don't take the spatial analogy too far. But the point is, nothing's going on there that wasn't going on there before. There's not intimacy with God is the assumption. But, you know, I'm kind of, ooh, I'm glad I'm over all that bad stuff. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself which is a verse we should have looked at when we talked about the gradation of, of demons. These are personalities, and they're all different. Some are not as evil as others. And they came and entered, I'm sorry, and they entered and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. That's the kind of moral reform that people get into who want to be, uh, you know, as Alice, I don't know if Alice Cooper should, I don't know Alice Cooper, but I'm just thinking when people clean up their lives and don't really get right with God, the worst, the, the last state the Bible says is worse than the first. Why? Because there's some volitional decision when there's some reprieve, call it by common grace, call it by the fatigue or boredom of the demon or whatever it might be, but the fix wasn't employed. There was no submission to God. There was no relationship with God established and therefore they're an easy target a second time over. Which, if you want to now employ the concept of 1 John 3, you can do it. And that is in verses 8 and 9, what did it say? He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. If you want to get this fixed, he says, be born of God. The practice of sin then begins to subside. Why? Because God's seed abides in him. Something about God's work inside, at least in that spatial analogy, changes my, my susceptibility to the domination of demons. And let me end with a, things that that's a good segue to this last point. There's a lot of heartening assurances given to Christians. Not to put on rose-colored glasses and say, hey, this is no problem. This is the domain of non-Christians. I'm not going to be harassed because we've already looked at enough passages to know that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, First Peter 5. But let's go to James chapter 4 to see one here that is a heartening promise. I don't want to get back to those statements of of warning and and, and being circumspect and careful. Let's look at these passages that give us some sense of hope. But it's always involving the Christian's volition. Now, notice this. First of all, context is bad. I guess I I break my promise here, but this is negative here to start with. Look at verse 4 to get some context. James 4, 4. Anybody with me on this one? 
You would, I say that in different parts of the state. They just erupt with, with response. Uh, okay, you're with me. It surprises me sometimes. You adulterous people. Well, that's why we didn't want to say yes, because you were about to call us adulterous people and read James 4.4. 4. We knew it was a bad passage. We don't want to speak up now. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is not good. Or do you suppose that it is uh, no purpose that the Scripture says, and this is notoriously one of the most difficult Greek phrases in all the New Testament, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. Uh, Maybe right. Uh, Probably capital S, I think. His spirit in us is jealous for us, but that's... Another sermon to try and untangle that Greek phrase. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Here's the good news. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. That's a volitional act on the part of Christians. Resist the devil, right? And I know that verse 4 is about compromise, temptation, sin. If I can resist that, not be the, the cheating Christian, the adulterous person who's not loyal or devoted to God when I'm playing with worldliness and sin, If I can resist him, because he's all into that, he's behind all that, he will flee from you. That's a great promise worth highlighting in your Bible. What is the vulnerability I have? Well, there's some vulnerability here because he's all about getting you, as Paul said to the Corinthians, to somehow be lured away from that devotion to Christ like, like Eve was. That's how Paul put it. But here he says, if you would resist the temptation... If you would stand against him knowing he's behind that, he'll flee. Draw near to God and God will not draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Stop playing around with sin and, 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 and doing all that stuff. Be, be contrite over your sin. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. And Satan won't be successful to whatever extent he is allowed to that is that not what we started with i started by quoting ephesians 6:12 but ephesians 6:11 begins by saying put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil i'm promised that he will attack me to what extent can that go i don't know that i can answer that but i can say this If you resist temptation, he'll flee, maybe for a more opportune time. And if you are willing to stand and fight, you can prevail. 1 John 5, I quoted the end of that chapter, but I jotted down here, verses 18 and 19. um, Because it says something very hopeful. I quoted verse 19. Here's verse 18. For we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, now referring to Christ, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Well, talk to Job about that. Is this an Old Testament, New Testament contrast, or does this mean in any ultimate way? I mean, I already know I'm going to have the darts of Satan, as, as as Ephesians 6 suggests, But apparently, there's no ultimate victory in a passage like this. And most of you know the verse in chapter 4, which says, Greater is he that is in you than is he that is in the world. Apparently, there's a promise of discernment and victory if I am submissive and responsive to his uh, leadership in my life. Next week, the whole topic is on 
defense. But I thought I would whet your appetite with a few heartening statements in the, in the last sub-point of number, point number three so that next week we can look into the defeat of Satan and our current role in defeating his work in our life. So more on that next time, all right? Did you hang in there? That was 11 out of 12. You're almost done. Final exams next week. Let's pray. Pray with me, please. God, thanks for our time in the Word, just looking at various passages, though it's such a negative and and dreadful topic to think that we have an enemy that wants to destroy us for the uh, disparagement and disdain of God. We want to stand firm. We want to take these passages and be holding on tightly to them, that you are a God that promises if we resist, he will flee. If we're willing to, be, to humble ourselves and be contrite over our sin, you will exalt us. That ultimately in Christ, there is a, no ultimate harm coming to us in the long run, though I suppose there are several passages that would speak to some short-term and very severe interface with, with demonic activity in, in terms of the life of a Christian, a sinning Christian in particular. But even Paul himself inflicted with a physical ailment in Second Corinthians that was a, a messenger of Satan, he calls it. Clearly, we're going to encounter the battle, but we want to stand strong and understand that ultimately the solution for every non-Christian that is oppressed and overcome and the solution for every Christian that is attacked and assaulted, it really ultimately is the same. And that is our clinging to Christ and the truth of your word, turning from our sin, mourning in contrition, a genuine repentance that wants to pursue what is righteous and godly by faith clinging to Christ who was born on earth for us to live and to die so that we could be redeemed and counted with him and protected ultimately from the most important threat of all, and that is your own condemnation, that we are saved from the wrath of God. So God, in the end, we want to, uh, to revel in that truth and we want to stand firm in our lives and we want to learn all that we can so that we can live strategically and intelligently until Every demon is locked away and put out of the presence of God forever, never to harass us again. We look forward to that ultimate state, the new Jerusalem. Get us ready for that in heart, in mind, in anticipation. In Jesus' name, amen.